Welcome to Behind the Line, the podcast where you'll get untold stories from first responders and military veterans. I'm Tim Hegman. I'll be your host. My guest today is retired Police Lieutenant Ray Garcia. April 11th, 2008. Even though the barrel was not yet pointed fully at me, I could see the end of the barrel. I was so concentrated on the barrel of the gun, I could see the grooves inside the tip. It was a silver barrel, and he was slowly raising it towards my face. His arm and hand stayed close to his body, and he was raising the tip of the barrel to my face. My wife and kids instantly flashed in my mind. I believed I would no longer be part of their lives. It was as if someone was reaching into my chest and ripping my heart into pieces. I looked at the gun. The barrel was still coming up. I can't get to my own gun. I'm gonna be shot. How will my family handle this? My son's birthday is tomorrow. I had an intense moment of grief because I wasn't gonna be there. As I was looking down the barrel of the gun, I saw a huge, slowly expanding orange and red fireball erupt from the end of the barrel. It started off as a little spit of flame at the end of the barrel, then it got bigger and bigger as it slowly expanded to this huge ball of fire. Through the fire, I could see a shadow of something lazily and slowly spinning as it flew toward me. In one fraction of a millisecond, I had seen the spinning object. In the next millisecond, it was gone. I was hit full force in my face. It was as if someone took a full-size concrete breaking sledgehammer and swung it as hard as they could in my face. Wow, Ray, that is from a, uh, a story that was told about you in a book um, called uh, The Red Dot Club, Victims' Voices. Um, that was seemed like a long time ago, uh, but I think you know part of this podcast is to hear your story and obviously learn uh, what happened that evening. So with that said, welcome, Ray. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, Brought it all back. <laughs> and we appreciate you taking the time to be part of the, uh, you know, the uh, Behind the Line uh, podcast. So thank you. Sure. So obviously it's been a long time. Uh, you and I worked uh, many years together, um, neighboring cities uh, in the South Bay. Um, but with that said, here we are 2022, and you retired in 2020. Yeah, at the end of 2020, yes. How's retirement? Best thing ever happened. And uh, I can relate to that. Yes, I can def definitely relate. Yeah. What are some of the what do you what do you do with yourself in retirement? Now, what are some of your hobbies? Well, uh, um, I like to play golf now. I didn't before. Um, wife's always got something for me to do. You know, I got a routine. You know, go to the gym, uh, get the stuff done around the house. Um, if she has me working on some kind of project, I'll do it. Yep. And if not, if I don't have to, I won't. You know, always uh, schedule a nap if I can, and. Uh, uh, allows me to be here uh, today because I have a free schedule. Yep. So I enjoy it. Do you find yourself in retirement busier than when you were working? Well, I always, I don't want to be, right. you know, uh, but sometimes I do, yeah. you know, doing little things for my parents because they need some help uh, here and there around the house. And uh, uh, besides doing things around my house. So you do find yourself doing things you wouldn't otherwise have done. Um, but uh, I enjoy it and uh, I enjoy waking up every day. You know, not having that uh, thing hanging over my head. 
<laughs> you know, mostly from, uh, you know, wearing that uniform, it takes a toll on you. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, well, it's great. Uh, I'm part of that, that club uh, these days, so it's nice to be a member. Yep. You know, obviously, I want to talk about what we, we started off with, uh, what happened uh, in 2008. But before that, let's learn a little bit about you. Uh, where'd you grow up, your family? Um, what'd you do as a kid? Uh, done many things as a kid. <laughs> you know, I'm sure things aren't that interesting that I did. I'm just a normal kid growing up in the in the 70s. Yep. Um, I grew up in Norwalk, California. I was the second of, of three brothers, uh, attended Catholic school, uh, working class parents. Uh, my dad's my hero. Mm. He's the guy that uh, got up every day, worked two jobs in order to send us to Catholic school. So I attended St. Pius X uh, Grammar School and then on to St. John Bosco High School. Um, after I graduated, I uh, joined the Marine Corps, and that happened by accident. But uh, a friend of mine, not a friend of mine, but uh, I was at a party, and I was complaining because I had joined the Army Reserves, and I was there, and I didn't like it. Hmm. And so I was complaining about it, and I was at a friend's party, and there happened to be some guy that was unrecruited as assistant who is a Marine. And that guy was at my door the next day, and I want to say within two weeks or a week and a half, I was gone. I was wow. in uh, recruit training. And so uh, fortunately for me, I did very well in the Marines. It, yeah, I took to it like a duck to water. Yeah. And so uh, I did some things that I enjoyed. I worked in a helicopter squadron. And then uh, toward the end of my enlistment, I had the opportunity to apply for a drill instructor school. And uh, for some reason, they accepted me. And I thought my shit didn't stink until I got to that school. Yep. And then I figured out, boy, <laughs> you're a nobody here. Yeah. And then I was, you know, barely squeaking by, put it that way. Yeah. And I was just happy to graduate the class. It was very, very hard, but uh, was able to complete that and uh, started my law enforcement career shortly after uh, leaving the Marine Corps. Met my wife when I was in the Marines. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. And uh, she was in the Navy at the time. And so uh, uh, we have uh, three kids together. Um, I have a stepdaughter. And so uh, they're all grown, you know, in different parts of the of the country now. One in Colorado. My son's in Texas. I have another son in Riverside. And my last son, uh, he's in the Marines. Oh, wow. Yeah. He just got back from a deployment in uh, Australia. How long has he been in? Oh, less than two years. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's a, he's a newbie. He's very new. Yeah. All right. Well, you got to be very proud. I mean, for all your kids, what they're doing, uh, proud dad. Very proud. Yes. Yeah. Good. I'm a lucky guy. Um. So, how old were you when you joined when you joined the Marines? I was 18. 18. And how many years did you serve? I did six and a half years. Okay. And then, like you said, when you became a drill instructor, I mean, that's no joke. Uh, number to be selected. Number two, to to go through that course and to graduate, and then do the work that you guys. Well, it's funny, did. you know, because the the course was pretty intense. You know, they had uh, I want to say over 130 of us that started. And they told us, they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to launch as many of you idiots as we can because we don't want people. They called it the street, the parade deck. Okay, they yep. called that a street. And they said, we don't want anyone across the street that's not ready to uh, exemplify what the Marine Corps stands for. And we're not going to send anyone who's, uh, who's not ready. Right. And so they said, we're going to put you on a, on a drape and we're going to shake it every day. And the strongest cats survive. Yep. And so... Finish the school, you know, half of us didn't make it, yeah. but then that's when the work starts because you go across the street and that's no joke. Uh, that'll take years off your life. Yeah. And so uh, I was fortunate to make it my entire two years, uh, one of, I think, less than 15 people. Wow. You know, started with 130, graduated like 60 something, and 15 people actually finished their two years. 
because it's such a high burnout rate. Right. Because you're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, uh, and so some guys, they just, it's just too much. And they say, Hey, but you know what? And they, they have places for people to go that, uh, they get to still stay and keep their hat. Okay. But they don't have to train recruits daily. They, they call putting them on quota, things like that. So very few people actually stay the entire time. Oh, got it. Yeah. They usually they'll do a year, year and a half, and then they go on quota for a little kind of like relaxed time Yeah. where they'll teach certain things, but they're not actually the day-to-day stuff. And I said, no, I'm going to try and make it. And I made it. And you did. I did. Yeah, one of a, only a few. One of a few. That's huge. one of the stupid few who said, <laughs> "I'm going to hang on, hang in there." Uh, but no, that's a that's a huge accomplishment. Um, so you, what year did you um, join the El Segundo Police Department? Well, I started to. Well, I was first started with the San Diego Sheriff's Department. Okay. So I got hired uh, the beginning of '92. So I started testing in '91. I got hired there. And then uh, I also applied with El Segundo, so I was a corrections deputy there. And at the time, and I'm sure you're aware that no one was hiring. Right. And so I was, I put applications everywhere, you know, on God's green earth, and including El Segundo. I didn't even know where it was. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I came down, took a, took a test, and I think that was in, it was in 92, spring of 92. And then I got offered the job uh, toward the end of 92. And wow. then started the academy shortly thereafter. So you started in 92, you retired Yeah, I think the academy started in 93. 93, okay. January, right, right when the, the first of the year, but we had got hired before. Got it. Mm-hmm. So when you were with, with El Segundo, what were some of the assignments you worked and as you progressed up the rank to lieutenant? I was fortunate. You know, I got to do a lot in my, my time. Started off as a patrol guy and then uh, went on to field training. And some people, of your, your viewers may or may not know, it's the people that train the new people who get hired as fresh out of the academy or laterals that come in, um, did that. Uh, then I was selected for canine. I put in for that and was selected, did that. That was a great job. Again, took years off my life. Um, was a member of our SWAT team. Um, I think I've done everything. Uh, went to motors, uh, rode a motorcycle, did um, a stint in detectives, you know, and as you progress up the ranks, you know, you get more responsibility. So you get to do things like the fun things like administration, you know, <laughs> right. like uh, internal affairs, <laughs> yeah, you know, all the things that uh, no one wants to do, but someone has to do it. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I made my way around the entire department, so there was nothing I didn't do. Out of all those assignments, if you had to pick one of like, that was my best time, what would that assignment be? I'm going to say the best time I ever had was a field sergeant. Yeah. Field sergeant, when I first started, I, I thought it was the greatest job in the world. You had great influence over the department. You were the risk manager, and uh, you were in charge of your shift. Yeah. And so they were as excited to be there as you, as excited as you were. If you were a lump, then they were going to be just the same. It runs down the leash, they say. Yeah. Just like when you have a, a shitty dog. Right. You know, runs down the leash. You right. know, dog doesn't know any better. He's going to know it from you. Right. And so the same thing when you're when you're a field sergeant. You know, they're gonna they're gonna take on your personality. So if you're going to be a lump, then they're going to be the same way. So I, I loved it. Yeah. At least that was the best job for me. Yeah, but guaranteed you weren't a lump. No, I tried not to be. No, guaranteed. I, I, I know that. So, um, okay. So, um, you obviously you retired as a lieutenant. I did. And what year did you make lieutenant? Do you remember? Um, 2005. Okay, 2005. And we're going to go and we're going to talk now about uh, the incident that happened uh, in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, your shooting incident. Um, you were a lieutenant when that happened. I was. Yeah, so you don't see a lot of that, you know, or hear a lot about, you know, people 
in a uh, you know a lieutenant or above. You do occasionally, but not often in these types of incidents. So let's talk about 2008 and how that night start and what happened that night. Sure, I could tell you what happened, but you're right. Lieutenants generally, especially in the LA County area, um, lieutenants generally don't don't work uh, like patrol, like a regular patrol officer, and it's no different, you know, for for me. But other smaller agencies across the U.S., you know, a lieutenant does do things like that. But here, I remember in 08, I was uh, uh, in charge of special operations, which included uh, traffic, animal control, and we handled, or I handled, all of the special events and overtime details in the department. And Pacific Theaters, back in, I can't remember, 1990s, um, when they opened, we had a big influx of problems that came with it. And so, uh, as a result, we, dis- we established what's called a theater detail. And the theater detail was there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I want to say five or six hours, and it was there specifically to address crime. You know, property crimes, uh, you name it, it was happening here. When my incident occurred, I think we had three prior shootings there. Mm. And so uh, it was, for whatever reason, we had a criminal element that liked to come to our theater. Okay, so we had to deal with it. And so, again, I was part of special operations, so I was in charge of the scheduling part. And so on that particular night, um, the way it worked was two officers would be two of them, and these officers would sign up, and there would be a third as an alternate. And so when one or two would pull out, you go to the alternate and come in. Um, On this particular night, there were two officers. It was uh, Officer Scott O'Connor and Officer Rudy Kirkhoff were assigned to be there. Um, Rudy called, said, hey, something came up. I cannot work it. I said, okay, let's go to the alternate. Go to the alternate. There was no alternate. Hmm. And so um, I knew Friday night, and I think there was a movie called Street Kings coming out. And I said, ugh. Scott, friend of mine, he's not going alone, and I'll do it. And so, and that's the way it worked. So if you had an alternate didn't show up, a sergeant would be next if they wanted it, if they right. wanted to work it. A lieutenant would be the last uh, last person to be called in or even asked. And so I, I don't even think very many lieutenants ever worked it. I would do it just because I thought it was fun. And uh, if someone needed a partner, I was more than willing to do you it. step right in. Yeah. Yep. And so on this particular night, that's what happened. So um, I remember I went to the station. Scott was working an off-site detail. He showed up. Um, we both wear a specific uniform for the theater detail, and that's a polo shirt that has, a, you know, um, what do they call? They're like uh, they're not patches, but they're like iron-on patches. Right. Um, screen uh, silk screened, and it had police on the back, so you're readily identified as a police officer, and you wear more of a tactical pant, but you wear your regular gun belt, radio, everything else. And so you have a special call sign when you're out there. And uh, you are responsible for this entire geographic area. And it just so happens that we're across the street from where it occurred. I, I'm looking at it right now. Yes, <laughs> yeah. out the window. And yeah. so uh, uh, our job was to be there as a visual presence and also to patrol the lots to make sure that uh, nothing was going on. And uh, we were lucky because uh, as a result of this program, I mean, we really impacted crime. It went mm. down. And so uh, a visual presence was always good. When right. they saw the police, we want to make sure they see us in the in the lobbies, walking around, up and down the parking structures, so they see that the police are here. And uh, that's exactly what we were doing. And if you'd like, I can get into yeah, what so, happened. Yeah, so you're there, and you've had three prior shootings. It's a Friday night. There's a movie that's showing that may bring people in, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe a criminal element. Um, 
And so you guys may be, you know, on high alert or just vigilant of what's going on. And um, were you, um, how'd you come in contact with this, with the suspect in this? Well, what happened on this particular night, uh, I remember it was uh, about 930 and we got a cup of coffee at Starbucks and we brought it back. And the theater, it has one central location where everyone funnels through and presents their ticket. And uh, from there, they go into 16 different theaters. So it's a big lobby. And so we were right at the throat. And we mm. were just watching. We were drinking our coffee. Um, we were BSing and uh, just watching the crowd. Yep. And so we noticed that the manager was walking toward us. And we always introduce ourselves to the manager that, who was working that night and say, hey, we're going to be here. Keep an eye out for us. And uh, we'll check in with you from time to time to see if there's any issues. And so she had. we saw her walking toward us. And so she walked up and she says, hey, I got a problem. Hmm. So what's your problem? And she said, well, there's a guy that's demanding a refund and uh, I'm not going to give it to him. I said, okay. That was kind of strange. Yeah. But uh, I said, okay. She goes, and he refuses to leave. And so that was our mistake number one is that we really didn't inquire as to what she meant by all that. Right. You know, we went into, at least for me, you know, police mode, let's just go in there, solve the problem. I was fully expecting to walk up to this guy yep. and then say, we'll get you your money back as long as you agree to leave. Yeah. You know, it'll be no problem. Just handle it low key. Low key. That was my that was my thought process. And so uh, if we had asked, which we didn't, we learned later that he had been there in the arcade and that he was using he was uh, uh, using some arcade game. that was a shooting game mm. and that he had. Like every time that he had used it, he'd go up to the counter and say the machine broke. And he did it like three or four times. Ah. And they were giving him the money. And finally, when they said, there's nothing wrong with the machine, we're not giving you your money. He said, well, then I want my money back. And they said, well, do you have a ticket? And he said, I don't have it. Well, his friends had it. His friends were in the movie theater. And so he said, no, I want my money back. And that, if we would have asked, we would have known a little yeah. bit more. But we didn't. And so we walked up. And we walked across from where we were located. We had to walk all the way across the uh, lobby. And there was a counter. And he was sitting there and watching this entire thing. He was looking at us. Because when she pointed him out, I looked across and I could see him. And he had his arms up on the counter. And he's just watching us. And I could tell he's a big guy. Hmm. And uh, he had a jacket on, a big thick jacket and kind of a weird haircut. And uh, he was just clearly eyeballing what she was doing and who she was contacting. And uh, I think she told him she's going to get the police. And he said, go ahead and get him. Right. So he was 100% waiting for us. And so anyways, we thankfully, we put our coffee down. <laughs> we walk up with coffee in our hand. Yep. Put our coffee down. And we walked up again, handle it low key. And so uh, in the police business, we always have someone who's the contact person who's going to run their mouth. And the other person is the cover person. And uh, you really don't talk about it. It usually just happens. Right. And so in this case, that's exactly what happened. I, uh, I remember I got on the radio first and I used my, the wrong call sign because I was the traffic guy and always on a motorcycle. And my call sign was 3 William Tom. I said, 3 William Tom, I'm out in the lobby with. And she said, 10 9. Mm. And I tried to say something again. I think someone covered me. And so she didn't recognize William Tom. So then Scott got on the radio and said, hey, X-ray, we're X-ray one, and we're out with one in the lobby. Clearly, she copied that. Okay, so as he's on the radio, I start talking to this guy. 
And so I see him right away and I said, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is pat this guy down because in the police business, anything that's bulky covering up their waistband, you want to make sure they don't have any weapons on them. Right. Right. Because right. you don't know. And that's where uh, people who are going to conceal weapons generally have them in their pockets or in their waistband so they can get access to them. So I said, hey, before we do anything, could you do me a favor? Could you did you get off the the uh, counter there and stand up and I'm going to pat you down real quick. And uh, I, I said it matter of factly like that. And he said, fuck you. And so I went into that old, I remember I had a flashback of that old, uh, what is it, verbal judo. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so the verbal judo. He way said, back. Way back, way yeah. back, verbal judo. And I said, fuck you back. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> I wanted to say that, but yeah. I didn't. Internally, you were uh, thinking internally, that. I was yeah. saying, fuck you back, turn around. But I did not, I yeah. refrained. Yeah. And I said, uh, nope, hey, we're gonna pat you down. It's gonna be real quick. And uh, that's when I think I got Scott's attention because then he rose up and he said, you're not going to fucking touch me. It was words to that effect. Mm. And so right away, I said, this is escalating quickly. This guy's agitated. You can see that he's even sweating. Mm. And uh, I said, this guy's pissed for no reason at us. Right. And so this is going to go sideways quick. And at the time, tasers are relatively new. You know, the personal tasers. Yeah. Before, the tasers had those wands on them. <laughs> the only people that had them were the sergeant. And so issuing them to individuals was relatively new. And we didn't have the same rules back then for the deploying them. You know, uh, now, now I believe it's like you have active resistance. Back then, you can have almost passive resistance. Right. And you could tase everyone. Right. And I was like a samurai with that thing. Right. <laughs> I deployed it on how many times. And yeah. I wasn't going to waste time with this guy. I said, oh, I'm just going to tase him. The, and I was thinking that. I said, okay. At the first time he said, fuck you, I immediately just reached over and I undid it because I said, this is going to go bad quick. Right. And so I tried to talk to him again. I wanted this thing ready to go. And so when, when that happened, I remember looking at his jacket and thinking I was concerned about the taser hitting the jacket. Not because penetrating. Not penetrating. I know enough about yeah. those things that you need to have good contact and a good spread. So if you got good contact on like a T-shirt and a decent spread, it's going to drop them. Right. Um, however, I've also seen it where you have hit a jacket or and then this, and then you hear the taser clicking. That means you don't have good contact. Right. And it's not going to work. And so for whatever reason, I was concentrated on that shirt with this thing. So he started to do some kind of break, some kind of movement to the right. Scott quick picked up on it really quick because he grabbed him. He grabbed him by the arm and the elbow. Okay. I remember that. And so after that, the taser was out hmm. and said, okay, we're, we're, we're going to go hands on with this guy and he's not going to like what's going to happen because I'm going to tase his ass. Right. And so I, I remember seeing that shirt. I said, what a beautiful mark this is. <laughs> this is, he's, he's going to ride this thing and he's not going to like it. Right. And so when I pulled the taser up, he was starting to, he started to kind of like bend over, but I still had a good, good visual on it. And so I went to pull the trigger. Nothing happened. And I'm like, you idiot. It's on safe. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, when you, when you pull a handgun, you, you do it so often and you train with so often that you know exactly how it's going to work. And, uh, with a taser, it really isn't a point and shoot type of tool because it's usually, you know beforehand, well before you're gonna use this. And right. you actually say, you got the taser, you're gonna use it. 
if it goes sideways. And right. someone who's going to use it, it's not like they pull, draw and they fire it. Right. They already have it out and it's ready to go. And so it's it's like when I was a canine officer. If you don't train to do something, don't try it. You know, because the dog will make the mistake and embarrass you. So unless you've trained it, like uh, sending your dog on a car that has closed doors, dog gets, gets confused and embarrasses you. So the same thing with a taser. If you don't train that way, don't try it. But I wasn't thinking that. Right. So I had it and I tried to pull the trigger and guess what? It didn't work because yeah. it was on safe. So all of this thing is evolving in front of me. And I said, okay, put the thing on fire with your thumb and see if you still got the shot. But this is all happening very quickly. Yeah. And so at that point, as I'm reaching for the thumb, I can now see him. He's bent over. He's bent over, and I've lost sight of his right arm, his right hand. And so, but he's bent over, but that hand is under here, and I kind of looked, and that's when I saw it. So what he had done is he had immediately reached under his big white shirt, and he had hold of look like a 38, and it was a silver gun. And so he had it, and it was it was like this in his hand. And so my eyes went directly at it right. and fixated on that. And that's when everything started to slow down. And uh, I it's, it's hard to explain unless you experience it. And uh, people have said when they're in like a car accident or something that's near life, life or death, that they go into that mode, that slowdown mode. It's not really a slowdown mode. Right. It's your brain. Your brain goes into hyperdrive. And so it is moving at such a high speed that everyone, everything appears slow. So I think it's God's gift to us that says, you know what? I'm going to give you an opportunity. You know, when, when you're faced with an immediate threat of life, that you can do whatever you want. And th in those moments, I could have gone anywhere in my life and relived it 10 times. Mm. You know, because time didn't matter. I could have, it was almost like I was slowing time so much that I could, ha I had a conversation with myself. I was able to assess what was going on. I knew exactly what was happening. And, it, but everything around me, I can see was moving at just a fraction, just so slow. And if I needed more time, I could have had as much time as I wanted. I had time to just have those reflections about my family. Right. You know, and, that takes a long time. This happened in a matter of, you know, seconds, you know, but those seconds turned to minutes, if not hours. Hmm. And I could have done that. I had every opportunity to, you know, I knew what was going on. I knew he had a gun. And then, so I was like, okay, do something, get rid of this thing and get to your handgun. And that's when it really hit me that I can't, you know, my brain is moving so fast, but my body right. is not, right. I can't make my body move as fast as my brain is operating. You can only move as fast as time will allow you. But time in your brain is different. Right. And so I, I tried. I remember seeing that thing in my hand. I remember, I remember trying to release, but it was so slow. And that gun was coming up so slow. And I can look at it. I was studying it. Hmm. I said, oh, my God, just like he's, the barrel is right there. I could see the grooves in this barrel. I could see everything, his movements. I could see sweat coming off of his head. I can see Scott, you know, this, the muscles in his arms start to strain. Mm. Everything was so slow and deliberate that I said, this is divine intervention. Right. You know, this is God gave me an opportunity to that. I know what's going to happen and 
I'm behind the eight ball. You know, you brought a taser to a gunfight. Right. And you're not going to be able to get rid of this and get to this in time. You're going to get hit. And so it was, it was, uh, I was, I knew, I told myself based on the angle, I did all the math. I said, this is coming toward me. Right. And he's going to pull the trigger. I just don't know where it's going to end up. You know, I'm, I, I even thought, blade yourself perfect so that if it hits you, you can absorb it in the chest. Your plate. Yeah, my, my plate, my yep. vest, everything can get hit here. And uh, I was trying to, you know, move my body, but again, it wasn't moving. Yeah. But uh, as that thing was raised, I can clearly see this is not pointed at my chest. This is now pointed at my my head, my head area. Mm. And so it all happened so slow, just like what what you read in the book. Everything saw, it looked like Hiroshima, mm. like you would see in an old nineteen forty five movie you know, of when we bombed Japan, it, that's how it looked. It looked like a nuclear blast that this, this mushroom came out of this gun and just expanded and expanded. And this red fire came with it, just came out, came out, came out. And I could almost see that bullet flying out Hmm. and spinning. This is coming right at me. And so again, I had all that time to, to prepare. I went through all the mental thoughts, you know, what's going to happen with the wife. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to do, I went through all of that thinking of my family, you know, what's going to happen with them. Um, and then it hit me. And, uh, when it hit me, it's like, like you, you read, it was like someone took a sledgehammer rare back and not just some small guy, right, the right. biggest guy on earth, Yeah, <laughs> you know, Thor took his, his sledgehammer and hit me and right here on the side of my face that's what it felt like and uh or and then and then it felt like someone took a bull you know uh air and just blew your head up to this three times its normal size right and then it collapsed and that's the last thing that i remember you know as related to the shooting um i do have memory of what occurred after however it's not what actually happened. Interesting. Yeah, because um, when you're struck like that, it, I, I, I liken it to your your what you see, what you smell, what you what you hear, are all operating on the same plane. And at the end, it gives you a picture that gives you a memory. And when you have shock like that, when you get hit like that, they're they're all screwed up. And so your mind is trying to pre- is trying to present a visual and a memory for you but it can't because everything is is seeing things in different order right yeah and so it's yeah. all screwed up and so when you think you did something when it didn't happen and you don't find that out until you watch a video later so i can tell you what happened in my head and then i can tell you what actually happened right so what i remember is the what I remember is I was laying face down after I got hit. I'm sorry, and this is still inside the lobby? In the lobby. Right, okay. I'm face down now. So the, um, I got hit. I'm down on the ground. And I remember my elbows. And the reason I remember that, I have a scar on my elbow still because I must have hit it perfect. And it took my skin off. Hmm. And I was laying face down. And I turned my head to the right. And when I turned my head to the right, I can clearly see that there's uh, my partner is on the ground. And I know it's him because I can read police on the back. And then I hear what is clearly a gunshot, but it's not a gunshot that you normally hear. A gunshot is very, 
is is very distinct. Yes. You know, with that crack, and sometimes you can hear that whiz. You know, depending on where you're at. This one was the crack, but the crack was so slow because everything I was still in slow motion, mm. and so it was so slow and drawn out. But I knew it was hitting Scott because I could see his body moving, as if he was being hit, and that's when I said, "Okay, I'm not dead. Um, my partner is dying," and I was filled with rage that this jackass tried to kill me over a movie ticket. Right. And I'm not dead yet. I didn't know where I was at that point. I didn't know where I was hit. I knew I was hit. Right. But, uh, you know, at the time I was like, okay, I thought I got hit in the head, but I'm, I'm, I can still see. And so get up. Voice in my head say, get up. You're not dead yet. You might be dead soon. Right. Yeah. You're not dead yet. Get up. And again, you have time to think about things. And I remember going back to when I was a young Marine in boot camp. You know, I remember my drill instructor telling me, you're not dead until I give you permission to die. And you're not dead. If you're not dead, you're in the fight. So always get in the fight. You know, when your partner needs you, get in the fight. And so until you drop, you know, you keep going. And so that was it. That came back to me. Get up. And so I remember getting up. And the next thing I remember, I remember getting up. And so... The next thing I remember, I was on a knee and I was now kneeling at the doorway of the theater. So it, it just like jumped time. Like the, the entrance of the theater? Yeah. The okay. entrance that is right. There's a there's an apron outside, like a sidewalk. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I was at the doorway and I was at the door frame on my knee. And I don't know how I got there. And I remember looking and now there's a guy, the suspect is now on the ground face down. And I look over, my partner, Scott, is now on his butt, and he is facing the guy. He's got his gun. He's got his back up against a railing, and I'm looking directly at him, and he's pointing his gun to the right, and the guy is laying there. And I was confused. Yeah. I was like, how did that happen? And then next thing you know, the guy rolled over. He rolled over and started shooting. I was like, oh my God. And then Scott started shooting. Then I started shooting. I was like, this guy is like, how did this happen? Right. And so then it was quiet and it was deathly quiet. And that's when I, um, now the guy stopped shooting. And then some reason I hear another, uh, I hear something off to my left and I look and there's a guy I'm assuming was his friend and he's got a gun. And he's got a gun up in the air. And so I reached over and I fired at him. And then he, a girl grabs him and they go away. And so I take my handgun and I holster it. And then we have, what well, we had, a triple retention holster. And if you know how to get that thing out, you're not going to. Right, yeah. And so I, I remember I double latched and I held on to it because I knew that having been through all these trainings, I've seen people try to get them out the can't unless they know how, and especially me holding on. Because now, and now I'm doing a, an assessment because I'm holding on to my gun and everything that should be in my mouth is now coming out. Mm. So I know that I got hit. And so I reached back to the back of my head because I said, oh, did the bullet go through? And it didn't. Okay. And so now in my mouth, I can feel what feels like my, it's in pieces. And so um, I was spitting out teeth, bone, gums, everything was coming out. And so I, I went like this for my radio 
radio, I look and it's gone. It's on the floor. Mm. And so I look over at Scott and I can't say anything. The only thing I could do is do this. I went like pointed to my radio and I'm trying to get him get on the radio. Because you don't have yours. I don't have mine. Right. And so I'm, I gave him the, the sign like this. And I meant to say, hey, I can't talk. Right. Get on the radio. Right. But he took it as I'm dying. Got it. <laughs> you know, uh, lights out, which it looked like it was lights out. Sure. So I remember him getting on the radio. And I do remember him saying there's people coming. And uh, I remember some of the radio traffic that went out. And now I was in, okay, it's 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 happening. Now now the death part's going to happen. Right. And You're preparing. so I'm preparing myself for what I thought was I'm going to fade away just because the, the amount of blood and everything that was coming out at the time, I, there's no way I could sustain it. Right. And so I collapsed down from my kneeling position to a almost on my hip. And I sat there and I said, the only way I can make it out of here is if I don't lay down. So I'm going to try and stay up as long as I can. If I pass out, then I pass out. Right. And I also said, hold on to your gun because we're in Indian country. <laughs> These guys, I don't know where they're at. I can't protect myself anymore. So the only thing I can do is protect my gun. They're not going to take it and shoot me and shoot Scott with it. So I just held on to it like this mm. and waited. And uh, then the cavalry showed up. And uh, the first person I remember coming to me was was the guy who worked there. I remember he handed me a, a towel and it was, I took it and I, with my left hand and I put it to my face, couldn't feel my face. Oh wow! But when I took it away, it was just completely covered. So I tossed it, I didn't want to look at it. Right. And so the first officer to show up, he, he got to me and uh, he kind of sat me up and he said, um, he said, yeah, it's, it's um, he, I want you to look at me. And so I looked at him, I was dazed. At this point, I, I couldn't really concentrate, but he said, look at me. And he, he checked my eyes with the flashlight. And he said, I want you to close your mouth. He goes, I want you to breathe through your nose. He goes, take two big, deep breaths. He goes, now cough all that crap out. So I was blowing it out. I was blowing it up almost, almost on him. And so it was all coming out. And so he says, I want you to look at me again. And then, so I remember, he told me, he says, hey, he goes, I want you to remember this and concentrate on me. He goes, your eyes, he goes, they're reactive to light. He goes, so your eyes, your pupils are moving. They're reactive to light. He goes, number one. He goes, the bleeding has slowed down. He goes, the most important thing is you got a clear airway. Right. He said, do you understand all of that? He goes, not if you do. I said, yeah. And he says, you're not going to die. Mm. And so when he said that, it was amazing. I was checked out. When he said, you're not going to die, I remember going back to, you've, you've been to plenty of accidents, you've been to plenty of houses as a police oh, yeah. officer, and, you, and I, you go to these places and you watch people take their last breath. Sure. And yep. sometimes you say, you know, sometimes people reach out to you and you say you're going to be okay. Right. And that's what you try to do to reassure them. And had he done that, I'd have been gone because I'd have said, you know what, I've heard this before. Yeah, he's just trying to comfort me here. He didn't do that. Yeah. He went, he went a step further and he actually assessed me, so he tricked me. <laughs> right, yeah. And so he said... Yeah. He, it made sense to me. And when he said that, I no longer, I was not on death's doorstep. I said, I'm not going to die. I'm good. I said, you know what? Maybe I just need stitches. Maybe I'm just a baby. Right. You know, I just need some stitches and yeah. I'll be out of here. Right. So get me to a hospital. Baker to Vegas is next week. I'm going to get to running this. And uh, the next thing I remember is uh, being in the back of an ambulance. I remember getting to the hospital. 
I don't remember much of that. I remember them, a uh, doctor looking over my, 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 uh, gurney and saying, we know where the bullet is. We're going to go and take it out and, uh, you're going to be okay. Hmm. And so lights out after that. And I have some other memories, which are kind of funny after that, but that's basically it. But, but the video showed that what I remembered isn't what happened. Nothing like that. <laughs> Close. Right. You know, um, for example, I did go down. Um, when I got up, I got on my feet. I don't remember that. I ran to the door after Scott ran after the guy. There was a running gunfight. So you've both been shot and yes. you're running after. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Scott had been shot point blank in the chest when he went to the ground with the guy. Okay. And then he got shot point blank in the shoulder. Um, I had taken one to the face and it hit me just below the nostril. Uh, bounced around. I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, got up and he exited the, it, it happened so fast. Uh, Scott was firing at him as he was out the door. He hit the ground. No sooner he hit the ground, he rolled over. Scott dove out of the way. Um, when he rolled over to shoot, I fired at him. And then I, I retreated back. And then I fired again. I came back out and fired twice. I had two volleys of shots. There was no second gunman. And I'll tell you a little bit about the second gunman later, because later on, we watched the video in its entirety. And probably five minutes after, his friends came back out when the police were showing up. And one of them had a gun. Oh, interesting. He was holding a gun in the video, but the police were already arriving on scene. So he put it back. And then his girlfriend grabbed him. But my brain, remember I said, everything's trying to create oh, yeah. a visual yeah. and a memory for you. So it made a, a vivid memory for me that there was a second guy and I shot at him. Right. When I didn't, I had two volleys of shots at the bad guy. Got it. Not this guy. Never shot at him. So it's funny how your mind, how your mind works. I was going to say, it's interesting that you thought all that until you saw the video. It's yeah. like, ooh, not, not what I thought. Not at so, all. How many, um, so you're at the hospital, um, what was the recovery for you? I mean, surgeries, um, any reconstructive re reconstructive surgeries at all or anything like that? Yeah. So uh, in the hospital, if you got time, I'll give you a couple Oh, we of were good. Yeah, we're good. Uh, uh, one thing, they put me on uh, a ventilator, you know, um, a breathing machine um, because they didn't want the, the airway to be uh, constricted because I was swollen. So what happened was the bullet entered here just below the nostril. And then, so if you run your, your finger up and you touch your cheekbone, so if you take a cheekbone, you go all the way up, almost back to your ear, all of that was gone. All the mm. teeth, all the bone just blew it up. Uh, part of my tongue went with it. Uh, a couple of uh, teeth in the bottom, the concussion of it blew these a couple down here and a couple over here, blew them out. And then it traveled down and it bounced off my vertebrae, chipped it, bounced back, and then landed on this side of my carotid artery. And this is the scar here is where they dug it out, where they got it out. Oh, wow. And so I was there, I want to say at Harbor General for maybe a week and a half. But uh, I found out later they put me on Propofel because I kept trying to yank that ventilator out. Got it. Yep. Because I, when I was awake and awake with it, with it in, I wanted to get it out because it was the worst thing in the world. It felt like you were drowning because mm, right. it's breathing for you. And if you don't breathe the same way, you know, it, it, it's, it's a problem. Right. And so it was a constant struggle for me. So I, I, I guess I tried to pull it out. So they had me tied down 
and on propofil. So when you're on propofil, you have these weird, you know, uh, visions, even things that actually occur. I'll give you an example. So one of the officers who now works for Manhattan Beach, your agency, who worked for us, yep. his name is Ken Chang. Yes. So Ken Chang shows up and I was out. And so uh, he's the first person I remember. I woke up and everything around him was white. And he and I saw a, an officer in perfect unit. You know, I knew who he was, Ken Chang. But for some reason, I couldn't speak. So I, in my head, I'm in heaven. And Ken Chang's in heaven. And so I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, how the hell did you get here? <laughs> what happened to you? You weren't even working. Right. You know, I understand I got my ass shot off, but how did you get here? Did you crash on the way here? <laughs> right. I had all these questions. And he looked at me and he says, do you want to write something down? Because I couldn't speak. And so I, I nodded and he handed me a whiteboard with a, with a marker. And I was like, holy shit. Um, he can he read my mind in heaven <laughs> right. and heaven is efficient. They, <laughs> they broke out on whiteboard. Right. So he gives me this whiteboard. So I started asking these questions. I said, how'd you get here? How'd you die? How long have I been dead? All these, you know, all these uh, questions about heaven and earth. Right. And I gave it back to him and he looked at it and he, he studied it. He's not really sure what's happening. So yeah, he looks yeah. at it and he studies it and he says, I don't understand you. I just came off the handle. I couldn't speak. So in my head, I'm saying, you dumbass, <laughs> I'm asking you some simple questions. You're reading my mind now, aren't you jackass? I said, right. so answer my questions. You know what? I took it, I gave it back to me. And so I said, I'm not, I even wrote, I'm not writing and I'm going to, I need to write this in Chinese, I guess. <laughs> so I'm writing this for him and uh, I gave it back to him. And he, uh, he, again, does the same thing. Says, I don't understand. And then he turned it and it was just just gibberish. It oh was my nothing. gosh. And I looked at yeah. it and I, I remember taking a breath whoop, and I was out. I was out again. And then the next time I woke up, there was a nurse standing there and she's looking at me and she says, you have to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Why do I have to go to the bathroom? So I, I kind of assess. Now I'm not seeing white. Now I can see I'm in a hospital room. Yeah. I said, oh, I'm in, I'm in the hospital. I'm alive. I'm alive. Yeah. I'm in the hospital. So I kind of look down and I can see there's some kind of tube here. And then I look down and I've got a catheter. And I'm, I'm confused as all hell. Why is she asking me to go to the bathroom? I got a catheter. And so I look down and she says, no, 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 no. You have to go to the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> all right. And I said, I went, and she goes, yes, you do. She goes, you have to go. I know you do. And when you're, I was sedated and you don't have any strength, can't right. do anything. Right. And so she started, I, I knew what was happening next. She says, I'm going to, I'm going to manually <laughs> disimpact you. That's what she said. Oh, wow. And and you, you remember that? I remember it. Yeah. And I looked at her and I went, no, I don't have to go don't <laughs> and she's she didn't she wasn't she wasn't reading my mind <laughs> because i couldn't speak right and so i'm i'm trying to tell her with my eyes and she's just not going for it and so i feel myself rolling over i hear the snap of the glove and she shoop, yeah and then she starts rooting around <laughs> and i'm just i was it was i was blown away right yeah <laughs> and so when she was done and she goes, oh, I guess you didn't have to go. <laughs> so those are just funny stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I was like, oh. But, you know, eventually I came out of it. Eventually they, you removed all the 
all the tubes where I could speak. And then you're you because they put a vent you're on a ventilator, you get pneumonia. Hmm. And so it was a it was a pain. So I was there for I'm gonna say a week and a half, maybe not quite two weeks. And then they carted me off to Cedars where I met some specialists to figure out how they're gonna put Humpty Dumpty back together. Yeah. You know, and uh, cause I knew that I couldn't eat. So I had to, they had me in a feeding tube and eventually uh, soup. And that, when I was at Cedars, it's the first time I got to see myself. Oh really? Yeah, because I, I had no idea, you yeah. know? And so I got to see myself in a mirror when they unhooked me with everything. And um, when you're laying down uh, on your back like mm -hmm. that, you can't just get up and walk or rock right. around. It's not the movies. Right. And so you sit up and you just start spinning. If you stand up, you're not going to stand for long. You're going down. You're going down. Yeah. And so it takes a long time for your body to acclimate and you're used to being laying down and it's just, you can't walk. And so that was the first time I was guided with the, you know, walker. I went to, to the bathroom because I said, God, I just need, I, I want to take a shower. Yeah. And um, I looked in the mirror. I just couldn't believe what I saw. I was like, oh, I had long hair, longer hair. And yeah. I had, <laughs> yeah. And I had, you know, a beard. My eyes were just bloodshot red from the blood vessels. And then I, I figured out why that happened because I had some memories of them sucking the, the fluid out and seeing nothing but red mm. because it was so painful. Right. But, uh, and that's what happened. They were sucking it out and my blood vessels were bursting from my eyes when they were, every time they had to drain my lungs. And so did all that. And eventually the specialists came in, they tried to figure out how they're going to do it. Um, eventually let me go home. And then I went to some, uh, specialists in Beverly Hills and they had to come up with a plan. And so the plan was, we're going to, your, your upper palate is in pieces. So we have to now bring them all back together, mm. you know, anchor them here in your jaw. And then, um, that was the first part. So they did that. That was horrible. Um, because they put you in a twilight to do it, but oh. yeah, they don't put you out. Right. And so it's like your, your upper palate's in 10 different pieces and they have to put them all together again. And by the they time that happened, the bones were starting to uh, fuse again. So they had to break them again oh, yeah, yeah. to put them back. And then, uh, then I had holes everywhere. So, you know, a year later I had to come back. So I, I came back from that. I came back to work. You know, oh, yeah, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. Yeah. So after they put me back together and the, and the bones healed as best they could, and then the, the appliance was removed from my mouth where I could start eating again slowly, um, I asked the doctor, I said, hey, am I going to be able to, can I go back to work? And they said, well, you're done. You know, you're done. You're not going to be going back to work. And so it was a big uh, argument. I said, right. no, 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 I'm going back. Yeah. And so I fought. You know, they say fight City Hall. I fought City Hall. I said, no, I'm going back. I think I'm okay. And so um, four months after this all happened in August, um, the doctor said, you can go back and you can sit at a desk. And I said, well, I can eat. I can speak okay. Um, yeah, I've got, a, you know, big holes in here. You can't see them. Right. Uh, but uh, I'm, I can still do everything. Right. And you can so still function and move I around. I can move. And, At yeah. that time, I was get, I, my strength was back. I can move around. Um, and I said, no, no, no. I left on a motorcycle. I'm going back on a motorcycle. And he said, you're an idiot. <laughs> he said, okay, sign me off. Wow. And so I went back to work. And four months after, I went back. But I did have to go back for multiple surgeries after to get put back together. Right. But uh, the funny thing was, is day one, 
I remember I remember I got my motorcycle was still in the garage from when I left it there. You know, um, this police motorcycle. Right. And so I backed it out. I'm on my way to work. And as I get close to the station, a call comes out. It's a, a four five nine burglary uh, in progress. And uh, it was blocks from the station. And I said, oh, I'm right here. And I said, three William Tom, show me in route. I'm almost there, almost 1097. And the second I let off that radio, it's when it hit me. You know, I wasn't ready mm. because it, everything came back. Yeah. I'm cold sweat. I started to shake. I thought, I'm going to have to shoot this guy. There's another shooting occurring right now. I was a complete mess. Wow. And so I remember going, pulling into the alley, and I said, it's, it's on. The guy, they said he's running through the backyard. I said, it's on. It's going to happen right now. And as soon as I got off that motorcycle, they came back and said, no, it's a worker. Oh. And, I mean, it just. Yeah, what a relief. What a relief. I went back to the station, and everyone said, oh, great, great to have you back. I went to the bathroom, and I just freaking sat there. I was mm. a complete disaster. Yeah. Was, should not have done what I did. And mentally, I wasn't ready. Right. You know, but I was there. So um, I fought through it, you know, and I stayed. Yeah. <laughs> I can go home. I said, I'm not going back in the field for this. <laughs> I hang tight for a little. Yeah. And let all this settle. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, you, you went back to work. I did. You had, you had to fight to go back to work. Yeah. Um, and there there's so many people that would have just said, I was lucky. I'm not going to go back. I'm, I'm calling it quits. Mm-hmm. I'm going to count my blessings, have my family, whatever, my life. And I'm good. Um, you went back, and like I said, you had you had a fight to go back. Um, but what I'm amazed, besides that, is it was only four months. Yeah, I'm thinking it's like a year, year and a half. Um, really, uh, like that's a significant injury, and just the the mental aspect of it, the physical aspect of what you went through. When you said four months, I'm like, wow, that's quick. It was too quick. And so uh, I blame myself for that. But uh, I did have to go back out. I want to say I came back in August and January, went out again for another four or five months. That's when they they took a piece of my hip out and they had to rebuild everything. Oh, is that? Okay, got it. That's where the bone came. So what they had to do is they had to put the, the bones they had together. And then now they had to take bone and replace everything that was there. Once that was solid, then they had to come in and drill in all the fake appliances and teeth and everything else. It took about two and a half years to, to put me fully back together. But, you know, a lot of the long-term things, they're, they're never going to go away. Right. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I hung out as long as I could. I said my goal was to make it to uh, my 53rd birthday. If I can do that, then I'm good. I wanted to go to 55. I said, you know, if I can get there. Yeah. And, but it was a struggle because there, there's, there's issues that I'm going to have forever. You know, like uh, the headache, it's never going to go away. That's what I was going to ask that. Some of the things that are the residual injuries that are still with you. Always. So the biggest one is, uh, you know, you get some finger tremors that I can't stop. Um, that, uh, And I have uh, an issue, a nerve issue. And so when the along the bullet's path, you know, I don't know what happened, but uh, it aggravated and did something to my occipital nerve. Hmm. And so when that happened, every time I wore all my stuff, it just made it so bad, right? I give myself a three every day. I've got a three pain thrush. It's always there, right? always there. But when I wore all that stuff, by the end of the day, I was just popping Advil just to get home because it hurt. 
I mean, it was the, it would flare up sometimes where I would just go in the office and just put my head between my knees Hmm. and try and stretch, do something. Yeah. And, uh, I, I pushed it as long as I could. And I told the doctor, I said, I'll let you know when I just can't take it anymore. So I want to say maybe a year before I finally called it quits. I said, Hey doc, I'm getting close. Hmm. And so they tried everything. Yeah. You know, they tried, uh, uh, they said surgery, they couldn't fix it. They can try, you know, uh, medication. They could try, uh, uh, therapy, nothing worked. And so toward the end, I said, okay, I'm going to push it this last year, but uh, I think that's going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to aim for my day. My day is, uh, my birthday. Hmm. If I can get to my birthday in October. Um, and so I made it to my birthday and that was my last day. I said, I'm out. Wow. I mean, you definitely fought and when you could have very easily rolled over and just called it quits, um, says something about you as a person, but you know, just knowing you and what you've shared early on, this is who you are. I mean, you, you are, you have that, number one, the will to survive. Um, you have that determination. Um, you go back to when you're in the Marine Corps as a drill instructor, hundred some people apply and narrows down. You're one of 15 who committed um, to that role, but did your two years where most people did like a year. So I commend you, man. I mean, that's awesome. Thanks. You know, either I'm lucky or stupid. No, 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 <laughs> no. I think you serve as a role model for a lot of people and, um, you know, definitely in the police community around the South Bay where we're at, everybody knows your story. The people that have been around for a while know your story. Um, even the people that weren't around, you're still going and teaching, you know, community classes, uh, at the police, police department. So, um, the fact that you're still here and able to tell the story is, uh, is incredible. Um, pretty fortunate. Yeah, definitely. So if you know, um, during the shooting, going back to the shooting, mm-hmm. how many rounds did you get off total? Um, I believe we both fired, uh, eight each, eight each. Okay. Yeah. So we had a total of 16, okay. uh, shots were fired. I think, uh, he was hit 15 okay. times. Okay. And what's, what was, who is this guy? I mean, do you know his background? His, his name is Jonathan Taylor. Okay. And um, he was a career criminal, uh, gang bammer, rolling, rolling 60s. Hmm. Um, been in and out of incarceration. I believe he was on parole and uh, at the time and uh, doped up. Uh, I was going to ask that question, yeah. Yeah, so his uh, toxicology came back. He had uh, cocaine, PCP, you name it, he had it. Yeah, uh, all on board. Booze, marijuana, he was doing everything. Wow. And so, and unbeknownst to us, that he had uh, been, uh, I guess they were watching him. Some kind of LAPD team was watching him or looking for him. Oh, interesting, yeah. Because he had a stolen gun. And I want to say the weekend before, he was flashing that gun at a party, and LAPD didn't take him into custody. They said, we're going to get him another time. And so it just so happened, the same gun he was flashing around was the same gun he used to uh, fire on us. They didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that he used on us. And, uh, you know, I, I don't feel bad for him. Uh, I feel bad for his family. Yeah. You know, he's someone's kid. And, uh, you know, to this day, you know, he, I, I know his name because every morning when I wake up, you know, everyone has a routine. My routine yeah. is doing going to the gym. But, you know, when I wake up, you know, I'm not a religious guy, super religious guy, but I, I believe in God and I, and I say a prayer. I say prayers every day. You know, thank him for what I've gotten you know, the, that I'm still here, but also, you know, I pray for his soul. Mm. I pray for three souls, really him, because I hope that 
God forgives him for what he did and allows him to move on to this whatever's in the afterlife. And for Scott and I, yeah, you know, because you know we had to take his life, and uh, you know, get the you feel guilty sometimes. Yeah, sure. You know that uh, you had to end someone's life, and uh, I mean, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't Scott's fault. You know, we just did what we had to do. I mean, I don't dwell on it, but I I do, you know, thank God, and and I do pray that you know one day when we're standing in front of whoever it is, yeah, that says no, you guys were okay with what you did. Yeah. And um, I think we're okay, you know. I think you're okay. I, I I'd like to think so. Yeah. But uh, you know, he's he'll he'll be forever in my thoughts and prayers. You know, um, I don't have ill thoughts toward him. You know, a lot of people say, "Don't you hate him?" I said, "No, I hated him at that night. I yeah. hated him then." Yeah. You know, in that in that instant, you know, that rage. Uh, I don't hate him now. You know, I actually feel sorry for the guy. Yeah. You know, he he died for nothing. You know, but this guy. He, he ambushed us. Oh, yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing. You know, you know what a parolee does. Oh, yeah. If a parolee, they avoid the police. This guy was on parole. And so they can't even have contact with the police or they right. get sent back, you know, for that bullet. And or in this case, he had a gun. So he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. He knew that the police are coming and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. And so he had a plan. He was actually pretty good at it because he hit two. And even hit a third person. Oh, really? Uninvolved. It's some other oh, guy. interesting. Yeah, hit him in the leg. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was happened to be in the in the theater at the concession stand. Well, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, well, you know, it goes to, I mean, your reaction um, and Scott's reaction when this went down would not have been so quick, or you wouldn't know what to do. I mean, you go into the taser. That's you're thinking ahead. Um, not having the safety, you know, off. Okay. But the fact that you thought about that, a lot of it goes back to your training. So can you talk about just real quickly, how much of your training before this really came into play? And I mean, some guys may take training. It's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to put a lot of effort into training into what anything they do, but how much did the training that you did prior really helped you in this incident? I think it was everything. Yeah. You know, because you're doing things without thinking about it, you know, whether it be uh, unholstering your weapon, putting it back, getting good sight alignment, sight picture. All these things are automatic and you don't realize it until it's happening in front of you. And right. so you have to be able to that's that's part of your training. And it's the same thing. You don't do something unless you train for it. The same thing with tasers. You know, we went over that after. Say, hey, you know what? We should probably if you practice it, if you're going to do it, practice it, because when shit hits the fan, you're going to revert back to your training. Everything's about training. Right. You know, even even when I was in those moments where I was, you know, in my own head, talking about, thinking about my life, you know, I was I was thinking about my holster because my holster is a triple retention holster. And I literally went back when I was the field training sergeant, when they were at the Orange County Sheriff's Academy, they had one of our recruits down there and they, uh, it was a will to survive exercise. And the exercise they told us, we're going to take his gun away. We're going to beat his ass. Right. We're yeah. going to take his gun away and we're going to kill him with it. I said, wow. Okay. And so they ran this guy all over the place. He was, he, uh, threw an obstacle course with red mans. And by the time he got to fight the red, the guy that's in a room, he was already exhausted and the exercise, they're going to kill him with his own gun. So, okay. So I watched it and all this was playing in my head. 
Interesting. You know, to to training. So yeah. when they got to the point where they're gonna sh take his gun, they couldn't get it out. Mm. These are the instructors. Right. They couldn't get his gun out of his triple retention holster. They took his gun complete, his gun belt off of him. Still couldn't get it out. I literally, and the whole time they're kicking this poor kid's ass. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they're beating him up. And I, I walked over. I said, "Please stop beating my recruit. <laughs> so let yeah. me get the gun out for you, and right. I, then you can kill him." So yeah, I got right. the gun out and I gave it to him. Right. And so all that played back in my head. Yeah. About this triple retention holster. You know, how does it work? You know, how how good does it work? I saw it. And so that's when I I double locked and I held on because I knew oh. that no one can get it and they weren't right. going to use it on me and they weren't going to use it on Scott. And so you, I think training is everything. Even um, at the time, fortunately for me, I think this had a lot to do with that. I was training for Baker to Vegas. So I think I was in the best shape of my life. I was ready to run. Right. And so uh, I had good stamina, which allowed me to get through this. So right. I think the training is about everything. Yeah. You know, if, and again, if you don't train for it, don't try it. You know, that's why it's important to train for every every scenario if you can. Sometimes you you got to, you know, uh, adjust, but you try to train, you know, just like you do with uh, felony traffic stops. That's right. You do a felony traffic stop. You normally you train the same way, right? Car here, car here, car here. It's never like that. <laughs> exactly right. right? Yes. It's never like yeah. that. So you got to mix it up, mix it up. Have the car sideways. Yeah. Have yeah. the car facing you. You know, you do things that are different. Yeah. And so uh, even when we gave talks to pol uh, police officers before before I retired, I always tell them how important it is to train and train for uh, realism. You know, when you if you're training uh, defensive tactics, you got you got to get into it. Oh, yeah. You know, you can't just half ass it because it's not going to be like that when you're in a fight for life. And especially in, in the field with any police officer, there's two things going to happen to a cop. Every cop. I tell the new guys. There's one, you're going to fight, not because you want to. Right. It's because that's just part of the job and uh, because people don't like to be told what, they're, what to do. Right, exactly. And they will fight you for it, and you're going to fight. The second thing is you're going to bleed. I just can't tell you how much. Right. In some cases, like me, it's going to be a lot. Others, it might be a little, but it's going to happen. You know, just like dog handlers. There's dog handlers. There's those who have been bit and those who will be bit because <laughs> it's going <laughs> to happen. happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, going back to the training, the defensive tactics, just real quick. Um, I took that serious. I was a young officer, but there was one time where we really got into it. And it was me and like three guys, defensive tactics guys. And uh, they had me, but they literally put me down and laid on me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't breathe. And I was in panic mode. And at that time, I realized this is serious. These are my friends doing this who are going to, you know, help me up afterward. Um, it's not gonna be so friendly on the street. So no, bad uh, guy's not gonna help you up. Not gonna help you up <laughs> at all. And you're gonna have. By the way, we, it's funny, you know, because when you when you train in defensive tactics, you're pretty light with all the stuff you have. Yeah, yeah. I'm a believer. Put everything on. Yeah. Because you're gonna have all that uh, bat gear on yep. and on the street. So you might want to put it on when you're training because you have to feel how it's gonna feel with yeah. you know 40 pounds of crap on. Um, it's important because it makes a difference. Definitely. Yeah. So we'll wrap up here in a, in, a, in a minute here. But before we do, is there anything like um, something you learned that you would like other people to know about or words of wisdom or advice or suggestions? I mean, some people watching this uh, may still be in law enforcement. Some people may be retired. Some people may not be in law enforcement. But 
they can always learn or hear something from the perspective of a police officer. Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, I would say for the police officers, it's take your time, number one, is don't rush in. You know, get all the information you can beforehand because it might change the way you're gonna handle things. You know, for example, in this case, if we would have slowed down, we would have found out a little bit more about this guy. You know, because she said, hey, he, she even noticed that he was sweating, he was this, he was that. She had, she could have gave us a physical description of him. We would have known, oh, this guy's probably on either PCP yeah. or uh, some kind of amphetamine. We would have known a lot more if we would have slowed down and asked some questions instead of treating it as routine. Never treat anything routinely. Complacency that should never be a part of your vocabulary in police work. That's another thing for yep. young police officers. Never be complacent. Always react because every time that someone is going to do something to you, they always uh, uh, give you some kind of warning. You know, it might be the way they stand. It might be the way they move their feet or adjust their body weight. If they're going to do something to you, they always give you that foreshadowing. You know, they project what's going to happen. That right. happens on traffic stops when they're looking in the side view mirror. That happens when they're going to assault you, when they blade their body, they do something. Don't stand flat-footed. You know, don't be complacent and react. That would be number two. Uh, and for everyone else, and for everyone, is that never give up. Because, mm, right. you, you know, don't have a defeatist mindset. You know, you may be down and there you may die. Right. But as long as you are drawing breath into your body and you're able to get up and move in a critical incident, do it. Because you might save someone, you might save your partner, you might save your friend, you might save yourself. And so there's you just got to have a will to get up. And, uh, you know, the other thing is when you're hurt bad, you're not going to feel it. Right. You know, when you have that really traumatic injury, God gives you that gift is that he numbs you up and you're not really going to feel it until later. Right. You know, yes. in the, in the, you know, the ones that are not life-threatening, you're going to feel those, you know, you break a leg, you break an arm, you're going to know it. But when it's life-threatening and it's end of life stuff, you're not going to feel it. You're going to, you're going to move on and, you know, use that to your advantage, you know, get up and do something, save a life, save a, save a friend, save a child as long as you draw breath, if you right. can, if you can move. Um, don't just lay there and say, I'm done, and uh, walk to the pearly gates. Have that will to survive. That's it, will to survive. Yeah, well, those that's uh, those are all great advice, uh, words of advice and words of wisdom, so uh, very cool. Uh, let me wrap up with uh, one of two things here I just wanna read, because um, I think it's important. I mean, you were, you were working, you know, people say, I was just doing my job, but, um, you, you did some things at night that, um, you know, you saved lives by your action, your actions. It could be people in the theater. It could be, you know, Scott's your own. So uh, I think it's important that people know that, um, Lieutenant Ray Garcia was awarded the medal of valor for his actions on the evening of April 11th, 2008. It's the highest award the El Segundo police department can bestow upon its members. So that is definitely well-deserved. Well, I don't know. You know, it's, it's to me, <laughs> I'm just thankful to have a good career. Yep. I mean, it's nice, you know, I have that thing there. It's, a, but it's a, it's just a ribbon. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm glad that they recognize some things, but you know, more importantly, I like to be recognized for the body of work, yeah. you know, that I've had in my career. Yeah. You know, what kind of impact I had in my organization, you know, things that they have at the station, you know, like body worn cameras or, you know, license plate readers. I want to be known for that. Yeah. You know, not for this horrible incident. You know, it was horrible. 
Right. You know, things that I'd like to forget, but if it teaches someone, great. But that's not me. Right. You know, I do. I did a lot more, you know, than just that night. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just grateful to be alive. And, uh, you know, thank, for, thank you for having me. Yes, of course. And, and before I forget, this is, I don't know if we can get this on camera here, but uh, this is uh, Ray's Medal of Valor. And at the bottom of that is fragments from the bullet they took from your face right <laughs> well it took from my neck oh, so your neck okay along the path so that's the the actual bullet and there's if you if you put me under an x-ray you know inside it just looks like a party favor <laughs> because there's metal fragments everywhere they can't get them so the big ones they got out and they gave them to me yeah but uh there's all kinds of fragments in there right now that you just can't get out oh interesting yeah all right, Ray. Hey, thanks for your time, your dedication, your professionalism, and your service to the community and to your country. All right, thanks. Thanks, sir. All right, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the show notes from each episode, visit BehindTheLinePod.com. If you want to support the show and hear more from our first responders and military veterans, head over to Patreon.com slash behind the line. I'll see you on the next one.